Welcome to Language and Culture with Dr. J. I am Dr. J. This is a podcast about language, culture, and identity, and how these affect all areas of work and life. My guests range from politicians to artists, scientists, educators, students. I conduct interviews in English, French, German, Hungarian, and Spanish. You are now listening to an episode in English. The podcast also includes two new segments. On the one hand, Dr. J's Soapbox, in which I briefly share with you thoughts that are just itching to be out there. And on the other hand, a segment called Kids Ask, in which children from around the world have the chance to ask my guests a question. The podcast is brought to you by Kulturium.com in affiliation with Quadil Books and Events. For more information about the podcast and about us, as well as for teaching resources and study guides to the episodes, please visit our website, www.culturium.com. That's www.culturium.com. You can also find me on our social media channels with the handle or hashtag DRJPodcast. So don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram for all the latest news and updates. This episode is entitled To Be or Not to Be Hispanic. The episode was recorded in September 2020. My guest today is Octavio Hinoyosa Mier, who is an old college friend from our time at the University of Kansas. Octavio is Hispanic American, more specifically Mexican American. He has dedicated his career to promoting the Hispanic American community. He has worked for the U.S. Department of State and the United States Congress. He has served as the executive director of the National Hispanic Corporate Council, NHCC. In April 2013, he was decorated with the Officer's Cross of the Order of Civil Merit by the Spanish Ambassador to the United States on behalf of His Majesty King Juan Carlos and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Cooperation for Extraordinary Services in benefit of the Kingdom of Spain. Octavio has served as president of the Hispanic Leaders Association. He is on the advisory boards for the Hispanic Scholarship Fund's Washington DC Advisory Council and the Hispanic Council. He has worked all over the world from Spain to Trinidad and Tobago, Uganda, Italy, Israel, Taiwan, Argentina, and the list goes on and on. Octavio, Welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to be speaking to you today. Andrea, thank you so much for this unique opportunity. I appreciate the, uh, the chance to share some insights and thoughts with you today in your audience. Wonderful. So let's, let's get started and let's start at the very beginning, right? So you're Mexican-American. Yes. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that. So I... Uh Perfect. I already know the story, but I think uh, it would be really interesting for our, for our listeners. Yes, as you correctly state, uh, in terms of my uh, ethnic identity within the United States, uh, Mexican-American, but I, I prefer to use the term American of Mexican heritage or Mexican descent, so I always emphasize the American uh, first. Um, I am so because I am the eldest son of uh, Mexican immigrant parents. Um, I, I was born in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, at a moment when um, my mother, being the eldest daughter and, and her family, went to go uh, spend um, time with my maternal grandmother, uh, who was then had relocated and lived in Los Angeles. And so, hence, I was born in the United States. Uh, my father at the time, he was an officer in the uh, Mexican Army. So he was not able to be with me when I was born. Um, hence, uh, that's how I became, um, if you will, that's how the start of our uh, American journey began uh, through my birth. And... Um, uh, interesting, I only lived for about two weeks in Los Angeles because at that time, after I was born, my mother did go back to Mexico with me uh, right after my, my baptism. So we, as, you know, as, a, as a small family, I, we lived there until my, uh, shortly after my brother was born. And at that time, my father decided to move on from being an officer at the Mexican Army and decided to pursue opportunities like so many Mexicans have pursued over the last uh, you know, 50, 60, or even last 100 years, 
in terms of coming to the United States in pursuit of economic opportunities. What's interesting is when my father came in, in 1974, uh, it was the beginning of what was then or has been called the, the, the Mexican uh, migration wave, which lasted for about 40 years. Uh, it has since, uh, no, it's no longer the same type of influx that we, ha we witnessed over the last uh, 50 years. But as a result, uh, now the United States is home to over 36 uh, million Mexican uh, Americans. Basically, it's over 10% of the United States population and within the overall context of the U.S. Hispanic community, certainly is the majority, almost a little over half of, 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 of Hispanics in the United States are, have direct descendants uh, you know, with, with, with Mexico. What's interesting is this is a multi-generational community. Um, there are, of course, you know, recently arrived uh, immigrants within the last uh, five years. There's also the uh, segment of the population that has been here for over 20 years. But then there are those who, as it's often stated, uh, the border of the United States of America crossed over them, and then they became American because they are multi-generational family history. So I hope in a nutshell is that I uh, wanted to describe in context of you know, what, it, what the Mexican community is like here in the U.S. Tell me a little bit about, I just read this, um, tell me a little bit about the term anchor baby. What does that mean? The anchor baby is, is a is a term that has come up in um, immigration rhetoric here in the United States. What it basically entails is that because the United States law of citizenship is based on your birth, anyone born in the United States or like on a United States um, vessel, ship, an airplane, is automatically granted uh, American citizenship. Uh, unlike other countries where you, you can only receive your citizenship through your, uh, through your parents. Of course, here in the United States, as with many other countries in the world, they do have the, um, uh, by law, that you, you automatically become a citizen upon birth. And so um, this term is often described in, in, in a derogatory way, unfortunately, by those who see um, an individual or families that uh, come to the United States for the purpose of only uh, securing citizenship for their, uh, for their children. And certainly... Which, which uh, certainly uh, happens sometimes. I mean, certainly... It, Unfortunately, there's a business, there's an industry, um, and it's very controversial. Um, you know, we, you know, in the last uh, year, years, there's been a industry of birthism or birth, a birth industry whereby uh, companies offer the service to individuals in countries such as, you know, Russia, China, and, and elsewhere. But primarily, it's been Russians and Chinese who have been taking advantage of this loophole or this, uh, this chance to get a secure citizenship for their children. Instead of looking at the United States as a place of, of, of uh, contributing to the society as immigrants or coming here in a more um, permanent, lawful manner. Mm. So, but but in, in your case, for example, your mother then went to Los Angeles because your family was there. So grandparents and, and so, yes. so to have because your father was in the army um, yes. to, to get help, sort of family help uh, um, to, to exactly. take care of. Correct, and, and certainly, you know, it was it was never my parents' intention for me to um, to to do it to secure the citizenship. That was not a a, a thought to them. It was basically because my dad, being an, an army officer, not being able to give that my mom that stability, and then with all logic, uh, you know, the eldest daughter going to spend time with the mother to help in the birth, you know, it makes makes sense. And so, certainly, um, that was the case in my family. The, the idea of even of my parents immigrating to the United States permanently really did not take hold until once my mom and myself and my brother were here with, reunited with my father. Um, and then it was only considered to be a short time stay, five years. That's when my father promised my mom only five years. And so when my parents first decided to settle in the United States, they settled right outside Chicago. And of course, the winters in Chicago are very harsh, especially for someone who comes from a less um, less uh, drastic climate, as, as, as you can appreciate, in, in, you know. And so, um, but that five-year stay ended up becoming a lifetime stay for my parents. So they, they spent more years here in, in the United States than they have in their entire life in Mexico. Mm, interesting. How had your grandparents immigrated? Why, why were your grandparents already in Los Angeles? Well, my, uh, it, so it was only my maternal grandmother. Unfortunately, she separated from my, uh, my maternal grandfather. And so she had to go find means of, uh, of sustaining herself. And so she had friends who had established themselves in, in Los Angeles. So she went 
to serve more like a, um, you know, to do uh, babysitting, housekeeping, you know, small jobs such as that. Um, I did have an uncle or two who had perhaps established themselves in, in terms of uh, living there. And so, as with all immigration parents, it, it usually follows uh, family uh, connections. And so, that's how that took place. And so, my, my grandmother, in the end, only stayed uh, no more than five years, if I recall. A very, very, it was very limited time. And she did eventually go back to Mexico. But had she uh, had she then already immigrated to to the United States, or was she just sort of there? Uh... I, I believe she was. She never uh, immigrated permanently, so perhaps you know, you know was there longer than she should have stayed. But nonetheless, back then, um, what's very interesting: uh, the U.S.-Mexico border was very um, open, fluid, uh, hmm. very fluid. People came and went without any uh, hesitation, any problems. I vividly recall um, one time when I, was, I think I was 12, 13, I, we went to, um, on my dad's side of the family, um, one of my aunts lived in Tijuana, and so my grandfather was visiting us. Uh, we, at that time, we were living outside of San Jose, California, and we uh, took, went down right after Christmas to, um, to take my grandfather so he could go back home uh, to his uh, home city. And I remember seeing uh, the border, and it was literally just a... a, a uh, a, a wired uh, rope, you know, a steel cable that separated the two countries. Um, I went back about four years ago, uh, this time being um, a guest of U.S. Border Patrol, and I was giving a VIP tour of the border and was shown how the border has been uh, fortified, strengthened, and the different layers of, of security that would prevent anyone from crossing over. It's very impressive. But that was, you know... What are the, what are the different layers of security? Well, there's uh, obviously high, high border walls or fences that are very difficult to, to climb over. Um, there's also, you know, cameras, other very, um, also classified, what do you call it, classified me- uh, measures. Sure. Measures that obviously we cannot discuss openly, but you could see how, how much um, infrastructure has been built over the last, you know, 20, 30 years in that particular part of the U.S.-Mexico border, which has always been highly, um, it's, in fact, it's the most crossed international border in the world, the border between what is San Diego, San Isidro, and, and Tijuana. And so how do you feel about that? How do you feel about sort of these border measures being uh, a, a lot more uh, extreme and, and a lot more pronounced? Well, it's, well you know, certainly it's, it's, it's a necessary measure because unfortunately there's a lot of um, bad elements in our respective societies that take advantage of, of certain situations. Clearly uh, the issue of of human trafficking it is a major concern regardless of your own political persuasion as well as uh, uh, drug trafficking and and you know the United States is the largest uh, narcotic market in the world um, so hence there's a huge demand for that and, and as a result there's always um, you know for someone who's business uh, savvy or the entrepreneur is always going to look for a way of making an easy money so sir, unfortunately there's been that huge struggle with uh, drug trafficking but, you know, certainly, you know, I mentioned earlier how there was this over a 40-year period, a, a, a Mexican immigration wave, which basically has come to a halt over the last 10 years. So while there is illegal or undocumented flow entering the United States, it's not the same as it was in the 80s. And is Today, that positive? Is that, that's a good thing? No, it's a great thing because yeah. um, obviously what it, what it reflects is the United States and Mexico are, 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 are two countries that that are so close to each other in in, in uh in a, in a, obviously for ge- geographical reasons, but certainly culturally, um, but in, in more so economically. But over the last 30 years, Mexico has developed itself to be a, a country with a, a large uh, middle class that, has, that, no longer, that no longer requires individuals to pursue opportunities outside of the country or in the diaspora like other, um, as we've seen worldwide with, for example, mm-hmm. Um, Indians living in the Middle East or Filipinos living in the Middle East or even in Europe, as you see from some, from some communities that have immigrated to Germany uh, and, and elsewhere. Sure. So you are first-generation Mexican-American or American-Mexican or American of Mexican origin. How has that shaped your life and your career and, and you as a, as a person? It's been a tremendous factor in my, in my own upbringing and my own identity because, um, first and foremost, uh, you live that the immigrant experience. You're, you're the first in your family to experience everything in, in, in society. 
you know, and uh, in my particular case, you know, being the eldest was the first to go through a whole, the whole U.S. education system without having someone close enough to guide me through. Do you have any, I mean, you know, I, I, on this podcast, I've shared a lot of uh, personal stories already um, of me growing up with my immigrant parents. Uh, as you know, I, I don't actually know if you know this, but you know my parents are Hungarian. Yes. Uh -huh. Right. Okay. So uh, I, I share a lot of stories about that, uh, about just, just how strange it was to have friends over because they had to always take their shoes off and wear these funny slippers that my parents gave them. And um, they served hot tea, uh, mint tea with uh, a toast with garlic and salt on it. And, uh, you know, sort of this is what was eaten. Uh, and so these were really strange experiences for, uh, for my Texas, uh, you know, for my yeah. Texan friends. I mean, any little anecdotes of, of you growing up as a Mexican-American, a first-generation Mexican in, in, in Chicago? No, absolutely no. That's a great question. I have, oh, where can we begin? Uh, you know, first and foremost, I, I do recall the moment we arrived. I don't recall the actual flight from Mexico. How old Chicago. were you? How old were you? I was uh, perhaps a little, little over three. Okay. So we're looking at October 74, so I must have been three, three and, and three and three months, if I'm not mistaken. And my brother was, you know, a few months old. And so I recall waking up and seeing my dad, and then we moved to an apartment. And the apartment complex where we live was very diverse. And it seemed to me that uh, they were also immigrants from all other parts of the world. I remember seeing, I still remember her name, Sharma. She was our neighbor from India. I was friends across the street with two brother, a brother and a sister. I think they were twins. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, they were either Japanese or Filipino. I'm, I'm thinking Filipino. So when I first started kindergarten, I was at a Catholic school right outside Chicago. The Catholic school was run by Polish nuns. And so my, my first grade teacher, I remember, uh, Sister Illuminata, was probably in her early 60s. So this is around 76, 77, 78. So if she was in her 60s, she would have been uh, in her uh, 20s and 30s during World War II. And so she, she was from that generation. And so in first grade at a Catholic school, since this was a Polish-American community, my, my friends, my classmates were of you know, the children or even now the grandchildren of Polish immigrants. They would teach us the Our Father and the Hail Mary in Polish. We would sing songs in Polish. So I had this identity cross, uh, crisis thinking that I was also Polish. So, <laughs> so I always thought that the, your identity was based on the language that you spoke. And since at home we spoke Spanish, that was always clear to me. But I knew that because we were a Spanish-speaking household, that you know, we were different from my, uh, perhaps my other classmates. I remember my best friend at the time, he was, uh, uh, his grandparents were, were from Greece. And so his father was uh, American born, you know, just like myself, first generation. Uh, and so he was now the, the third generation living in the United States. And so I remember going to his house, he would be speaking Greek to his grandparents because his grandparents didn't speak English. So I always value that introduction to global diversity at that early age. So, um, so that was one incident. And certainly um, right after uh, first grade, we moved to Kansas because at the time, my uh, father reconnected with his sisters who had moved there. And that's a whole different story about the history of, of, of Mexicans in, in Kansas, which we could certainly uh, discuss. But, I, but there, I was much more cognizant of, of my own identity because it, it was based on my language at, and what I spoke at home. And knowing that in school, no one spoke Spanish other than, it was just myself. And other than a, than a classmate who had also had a very similar experience so it was very much a very personal type of, um, I guess, identity. Mm -hmm. um, but you, but you spoke, but you spoke Spanish at home. You continued speaking Spanish at home. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you continued having Mexican food. Um, did yes. other traditions? How else did the Mexican identity come through? Uh, you know, but so I think more in the, like the in the family um, environment in terms of you know uh, you know the. Uh, you know, but you know the, the whole uh, cooking culture is is where you really see it. Mm. Uh, 
you know, certainly the, the foods that I would eat at home were nothing compared to what that was offered at school during, you know, school lunches, nor, well, perhaps my, my classmates would be eating. Give, know, us a, give, give us one example. Something as, 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 as interesting as what you shared, I mean, perhaps the tripe soup would be one that, which we call menudo. Certainly the, you know, the, the tripe of a, of a cow is, 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 is a delicacy in so many parts of the world. Uh, but, you know, for me growing up, I was, I was not drawn to it because it, just the idea of eating a cow's stomach was, you know, was, was not a good idea. But as I grew up, I certainly acquired a taste for it. And I just love, love uh, beef tripe soup, which is menudo. <laughs> Especially as I've grown older to find that it's a great remedy for after you've been out uh, late at night. Um, I certainly enjoy it today. Unfortunately, my kids, my wife do not, do not enjoy it as much as I do. In fact, my wife despises it. So um, that would say that was probably one of the most uh, interesting things that none of my friends would, would ever eat. Romanian oh. foods. Uh, and since, since my parents are Hungarians from Romania, we eat it as well. Um, it's called, in Romania, it's called chorba de burta. Um, right. And it's, uh, you eat it with hot peppers. Oh, nice. And the other one would be beef tongue, right? And so, yes, that too. How funny. Okay. Oh, and for me, in fact, last night we were looking at recipes on how to make a, a recipe uh, that we want to try this weekend, which I enjoy, which is um, beef tongue in green, in green salsa. So lengua in salsa verde. Um, and we could talk, certainly talk about that. But for me, beef tongue is, uh, is, is a huge delicacy. I love eating beef tongue tacos. I mean, that is the first type of taco I would order every time I, would, I go to Mexico. So, so little things like that become, um, you know, interesting um, that perhaps your friends would never dare try. But um, so, so how is that sort of for a kid, you know, when uh, I imagine, uh, uh, um, you, you know, you go to you go to school and all of a sudden you sort of uh, uh, tell your friends that last night you guys had beef tongue taco. How do the sort of typical American kids react to something like that? Like, oh, that's gross. That's disgusting. But again, you know, it's, you know, at the time, you know, you know, people have, were not as exposed to uh, different uh culinary or, 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 you know, other influences as we are now today. Now we just get on, on a video and we can see what people are eating around the world. And it's something that, you know, I consider myself a foodie. I, I enjoy uh, trying new foods um, and having been exposed to different cultures early on. Um, in fact, now that we're living through this uh, global pandemic and with the limited ability to go to your to restaurants, um, I've taken the opportunity over the last five, six months to really start learning how to cook different dishes from, from around the world. Um, for example, I, last week I finally learned how to make pad thai, uh, how, to, how to prepare sticky rice with, with mangoes. And about three weeks ago, we uh, even uh, cooked our first uh, Vietnamese pho here at home, which was a huge success with, with my children. So, so, yeah. That's great. I mean, that's, if, if, if uh, COVID is good for anything, I guess uh, people are doing a lot more at home together and, and, and cooking and, 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 and coming together. So let's let's move on from the Mexican identity a little bit and broaden it a little bit because oftentimes you will not be considered Mexican American but Hispanic American. The term Hispanohablante or or uh, Latino. Well, that's that's one that I think is is quite controversial. Uh, being called Latino, um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Oh, great question, Andrea. So so uh, you know, I so much appreciate you starting the conversation about focusing on my Mexican-American identity because, again, it was such a, and it is, you know, who I am. But that was what I was exposed to up to about 17, okay? At around 17, when I was a senior in high school, I believe I heard the term Hispanic for the first time. And for me, when I heard that term, I did not have a full understanding or appreciation of what it actually meant. And when I, when I heard it what, it, what it conjured up was East Coast, uh, Hispanics, i.e. the Cuban-American community in Miami, Puerto Ricans, New York. For me, those were Hispanic, right? And I did not have a full appreciation of what, what it really meant in the U.S. context. Um, and I vividly recall a high school friend of mine coming up to me and hugging me and saying, oh, I love my Hispanic friend. And I remember telling her, what, what do you mean? That, I'm not that. I'm, you know, and I, always, I, was, I have always been proud of my own Mexican identity um, in that sense. So it wasn't until university at the University of Kansas where we met that that became a term that I started to embrace fully. And for me, it, it really has um, enriched me uh, and gave me a sense of appreciation of who I am in the American context. 
right? That I am part of a, of a diverse group of communities who have a common heritage being the Spanish language, the Spanish culture that is uh, centuries old, right? And each of us have a unique sense of, 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 of appreciation for each other's traditions, which are very much shared across, but yet there's also very much different um, identities or aspects of, our, of who we are that enriches us all, right? Um, we could talk about beans, if I can. Uh, I think this will uh, exemplify what I'm trying to uh, share with you. As a Mexican-American, the beans that we would eat are the pinto beans, the refried beans, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, right? That is what I grew up with. The idea of eating black beans was absolutely unknown to me or any other type of bean until I basically moved to Washington, D.C. and I started to befriend uh, Amer uh, Cubans from Miami, American Cubans, and I acquired the taste of black beans. Well, guess what? The other day I made black Cuban black beans at home. Why? Because I love them. And so to me, they become my preferential bean of choice versus the pinto beans. So it gives you a sense of how there's been this cross-pollination influence of each other's... Uh, do, you, uh, do you know what other beans are eaten uh, in, in other Latin, Latin American... Yes. Species? The other one, there's, uh, there's, a pe there's a bean called pe uh, peruano or canarian bean, which are... Um, they're, they're a different color. In fact, that's the bean that my wife's family eats, and my wife is from Guadalajara. And interesting oh, yeah, enough, well, that's, that's where yes. I spend most of my time in Mexico. How about that? So this morning, in fact, you know, she is a uh, Spanish immersion teacher for four to five year olds. And this morning she took out her, the bag of beans that we have that are these, we call them Peruvian beans because that's what they're, that's what they're called. Uh, but they're um, like a light yellow color. And so she took them out because she was going to use them as an exercise for her students. And so next to the, the, the Peruvian beans are the Cuban beans. And then we have another bag of, of the, the pinto beans as well. Okay. What about so they, white beans? You know, white beans, um, I have not been exposed to that as part of my day-to-day, -day, uh, you know, day-to-day uh, -day, uh, consumption. Culinary experience. Or, or <laughs> but that came later. In fact, uh, the white beans, I've got an appreciation because there's a, uh, a Portuguese dis dish from uh, Porto, which is called uh, Tripa Jamão de Porto, which are... Uh, Porto style tripe uh, stew, basically, and it's served with white beans. And so the other day, um, uh, well, not the other day, about a year and a half ago, my, my wife was, uh, who, who was diagnosed with thyroid cancer, she had to spend a week isolated uh, as part of her treatment. So I took advantage of that time and ended up cooking tripe at home, which, as you know, it, it, it can, you know, it has a pretty strong uh, smell. And so I made it with the white beans. So it became like my, my chance to really enjoy white beans with tripe. Okay, that's really interesting. We don't think about that. And I think that's also sort of something that, that's important to think about, sort of how um, oftentimes uh, people get grouped into categories such as Hispanic or Asian or Eastern European or African or et cetera. And then the whole, this, this whole minority group becomes associated as, as sort of this one bag of of culture and of goods and it's and there are so many intricate di uh, differences and, and intricacies uh, among the among the groups so what are the positive and negative aspects of being grouped into being hispanic for example in in your case positive or ne negative aspects well, well, sort of both because i mean i i guess i guess one one aspect is that some of the mexican uh, is uh, diluted um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, there is this group feeling that, that, that certainly, like you said, you share cultures, you share religion, you share language, you share a lot of the values. past mm -hmm. values, exactly. Well, you know, for me, it's, it's always been a more of a positive. I don't, I don't ever think consider of any negative aspects um, on it. Um, I guess it all goes down to your own self-esteem, your own, uh, how you see yourself. Uh, I'm confident enough and proud enough about my if you will, my, my, my identity as, if you will, my, my Mexican side of my identity. I celebrate it. I love it. I thrive it. I mean, I, 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 I yearn it. I look for it. Um, but then on the Hispanic side of identity, it's an opportunity for me to continue growing at a, at a, at a personal, cultural level, even intellectual level. Because I realized, and I, ha and I would love to comment a little bit more about this, that I'm also part of a large global community. Uh, which is, uh, I mean, in word in Spanish, it's called hispanidad, and it's something that um, 
that is very much celebrated around the world. And it's, you know, a community of 500 million plus people who share, uh, you know, this common link with, with Spain because of its, um, you know, it's, it's long history as, as a, as a civilization that, you know, has, you know, grew beyond its borders and went out and had, had was obviously through the age of exploration and conquest. Well, obviously it took foothold in the Americas and, and, and even in, in Asia. So that's something I'm very much proud of. I, I absolutely love meeting individuals from all parts of Latin America. I, I enjoy listening to their accents. I, I mean, I just thrive, you know, from the, the rich diversity that the Hispanic global community offers to the world. Um, and so it's something I'm very much proud of as well. Okay, so, so let's go back just, the, just the one step. So you associate also with Spain. So it's, it's Ibero-Americano. So it's, it's really sort of you, you really think of also this identity. Sort of, so then really not just geographic uh, connection, but also, well, it's, it's mainly the linguistic connection then. It's, it's mostly the linguistic connection, but it's also the history, uh, Andrea. I mean, I, I really have... Although it's a difficult history. It's a problematic. It's not. I mean, yes and no, but for me, it's not. Uh, interesting enough, uh, Andrea, I'm, I'm, I'm very much someone who, who recognizes, the, you, know, the, the, you know, as we know, history has its good and its bad, right? Sure. Um, but for me, I, I'm very much proud of, of, of that history because that's, in the end of the day, that's why I exist, right? Um, and so... You know, unlike perhaps other uh, others who perhaps do not see Spain as a as a plus to their identity, I see it as a huge plus. Um, not just because it's where the language is from, but it's also because uh, of the history that that's there. And it's you know it's my way of connecting to Europe in in, in a sense, right? So perhaps the way I look at Spain is perhaps how a Jewish American could look at at Israel. Or perhaps uh, an Irish American could look at Ireland. Um, you know, it's it's the it's the motherland. It's the you know in Spanish there's the term madre patria, and if you break it down, which is basically the motherland, it, it's the closest uh, translation in England in English, but literally means mother fatherland, right? And so we've there's been a, a, a Spanish intellectual who I, I've met um, over the years who's coined the term of la abuela patria, the grandmotherland. And that's what it really is for us, that it's not the motherland because the motherland is the, the land where your parents are from, but the grandmotherland is the land where your ancestors are from, right? I like that. I like that a lot, yeah. So that's how I look at Spain as the, as the grandmotherland, la, la abuela patria. So, and, um, and over the years, in, in terms of business and educational opportunities, I've, I've, I've had some amazing experiences. And, and I have to admit, it's my favorite place to travel in the world. Every, every time I have a chance to go to Europe, I end up, going to Spain and I end up staying there. And, I, and as a result, I, I missed out on the opportunity of, of visiting other amazing places in Europe, like where you're at today. Mm, you've never been to Germany at all. I have yet to go to, have yet to visit Germany. Well, you'll have to come visit. Thank and you. Uh, without mentioning names, you have another friend living in Frankfurt as well. So uh, how about next trip, Frankfurt, Hamburg, uh, both beautiful cities. Absolutely. <laughs> no, really with pleasure, with pleasure. So, so what, what do you think separates Hispanic culture from Spanish culture? How is Hispanic culture different from Spanish culture? What are the, or how is it, maybe, maybe I could even phrase the question like this. How is, do you think, if, if Spain is the abuela, if Spain is the grandmother of all, the children, the Hispanic yeah. countries have developed, how yeah. are, or how is Hispanic culture possibly even richer than just Spanish culture? No, that's, that's a great, great question. I'll, I'll explain it this way. Let's, let's look at it as a, um, it's a global community, right, um, that is divided into three parts. There are the three cultural spheres, right? There's, there's the, the European Spanish sphere, which, uh, which would, you, you know, for those of you in Europe, would be very, obviously very close to and familiar with. There's the Latin Americans cultural sphere, which is, of course, you know, all the Spanish speaking countries in Latin America. And then there's the United States Hispanic sphere. And the last one, which is what I'm a part of, is perhaps the most promising one, because what, what is happening is you're getting the influences from all the others. 
not just uh, uh, because of, of the individual stories of personal stories of, of immigration, but there's also the history under it, right? And so here in the United States, the Hispanic community is the second largest demographic group in the United States of America. It has been so for the, at least the last 20 years. And, you know, this year, as you can appreciate, it's a, a, a very important election year. Hispanic Americans are now the second largest voting bloc in the country for the first time. So we are now looking at a situation whereby demographics are, are fueling this tremendous cultural growth and a new identity that you see worldwide. You see it through Ricky Martin. You see it through, uh, you know, uh, Luis Fonsi and his Despacito. I mean, think about those cultural influences that the world sees and they think, oh, that's Latin America. No, no, it's coming from the United States. Yeah, perhaps, you know, Puerto Rico, but also through, you know, other amazing uh, musical cultural talents and actors, you know? So that's something that each one is, is unique, but they're all connected, right? Um, and so, um, you know, each, I, I wrote a, a paper once about what it means to be Hispanic in the United States. There, there's no one definition. It's very diverse. Each individual has their own way of identifying themselves. So I would say there's 60 million versions of what it means to be Hispanic Latino in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so even politically, the term, uh, for those who use Hispanic are seen more as on the conservative side. When those who use Latino are seen more on the, uh, on the, um, on the, uh, I guess, I don't want to say liberal side, but more on the, on the center left versus center right. And there's been this emergence of this new term called Latinx, which um, is trying to be politically correct, which so many of us, uh, unfortunately, we, we, we don't accept it. We don't recognize it and, are, 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 and we frown upon using it because what is that? I mean, it's, it's, I understand it. you're trying to be, as, to be politically correct or inclusive, but for me, that's a, it's a, it's a term that I would not, use or identify with. Mm -hmm. no, thank you. That's a great answer. Yeah. Go ahead. No, please. No, which, which was another term. In the 70s, there was also the term of Chicano, right? And the term Chicano became, you know, how Mexican-Americans identify themselves. And that became its own little unique subculture within the Mexican-American community. And so um, it, at school, when you would register and they, they would take the census, they would ask, you know, what's your, the family background identity, and you see Mexican, and, and you see Chicano in parentheses. I'm like, well, I never use that term at home. And so it was never part of my own identity. Perhaps it was of, of others, uh, and they embraced it, and they celebrate it, and it's very unique because there's even this whole new um, genre of, of, of literature called Chicano literature, which is, you know, written by Mexican-Americans who have expressed themselves um, through through writing and, and have... Um, have created this own uh, genre of, of, uh, of literature that's also very rich indeed. Mm -hmm. Since we're talking about terms, let me just ask the question because it's something that, that has always bothered me. Um, I grew up in Texas. I mean, sort of my parents immigrated and, and moved to Texas in Bryan College Station in Aggieville. So, um, and one of the terms that I remember hearing and, and not understanding at the time was mojado. Oh, um, yes. Do you want to sort of talk about that at all? Sure. I mean, again, those are terms that, um, interesting enough, it, it, it's used both in English and Spanish. Um, and the term ojalá, which means wet, you know, someone who is wet. Um, and in English, it became a, a derogatory term called, um, that's referred to as wetback, you know, the, because they swam the river, their the backs are wet, right? And so that it's become a very uh, frowned upon term to use. Um, Fortunately, I do not hear it perhaps as much as I did growing up. Uh, Absolutely. Then, I mean, it, it's, it was in Texas that I heard it, and then my parents moved to Kansas when I was in high school. And from then on, I didn't really hear it ever again. I yeah. mean, but, but even growing up in, in Kansas, I mean, I, I would hear it. Um, but, you know, I don't – personally, I don't think uh, I've, I've ever been the recipient of that term. Uh, you know, certainly if, if it ever – occurred to present day, I would, I would react in a very, um, it would be interesting how I would react if, if I ever heard that term associated to me. Mm -hmm. But yes, I mean, th those are terms that, unfortunately, they, they um, are used by individuals and they're obviously, they're meant to hurt and not more than that. Mm, absolutely. So let's, let's go to the next question, which you kind of answered in part already. Um, 
So you have these very strong, and I, and I find it fascinating. I mean, that's, that's one of the purposes of this podcast, people with different identities, different cultural identities. I mean, you have this very strong Mexican identity, the Hispanic advent, identity, but then there is, I mean, if anybody heard you speak, um, nobody would be able to say that you were, that you had any other origins. I mean, your English is perfect. You look American, you um, quote unquote behave American. So you are American. So what about this very strong identity of, of American? No, great question. I mean, because again, it's, um, it's, it's something that's also has, has developed and evolved, right? You're educated in, in, in American society. Obviously that's, um, your identity as a citizen of this country is, is instilled in your education, uh, obviously through public school and 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 day to day life. But I, I've but I've never I've never questioned that identity, Andrea. To be to be quite honest, because I mean it's you know having been born here, having been raised here, you know I, I'm very proud of it. But I will say this: I did not. I don't think I really fully appreciated my Americanness identity until the first time I went to, I uh, visited Europe and I visited Spain. Because that was the first time I had my US passport. And it occurred right after um, the, the, the years that we were at the University of Kansas when we, we went to go visit common friends. And so I went over for a Christmas uh, to spend uh, Christmas with my, with my best friend and his family. Um, and again, that was the first time I visited Spain. And I was just absolutely enamored, amazed. I mean, it was a whole new world for me. Um, and I had a little test for myself. I wanted to see how long I could go without missing the U.S. or missing something about the United States. And my test was the hamburger test. And after spending three weeks, I finally broke down. And it occurred after we were out uh, at a few bars uh, right outside Bernabeu Stadium in Madrid. And we walked past a Burger King. And I said, no, I have to have a hamburger. <laughs> so I remember it's literally having my Whopper right outside of, of, of Bernabeu and uh, just terrible, 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 terrible. <laughs> okay, I, I'm an American. Yes, I know what it means. <laughs> so that was my, uh, if you will, that was like, I had no questions about who, who I am in the world. Right? <laughs> so do you think that's the biggest symbol? Do you think that's a really strong symbol of, of Americanism, the, 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 the hamburger and Coca-Cola? Well, you know, the, the other similar experience I had a few years after that was in Amsterdam. And I had just, you know, um, you know I, I, I flew from, 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 from Alicante to, to Amsterdam. And, of course, it's the first time I ever experienced a situation where I, I am in a, in, a, in a place where I have absolutely no idea what, what the, the – I didn't understand the language. Obviously, although everything was in Dutch, I had no idea what, was, uh, what signs were read. And so I remember coming out of a, a central station there in Amsterdam. I was like, oh, I'm hungry now. And the first thing I see is a McDonald's. So I go into the McDonald's and I ask for a quarter pounder. And the person says, we do not have quarter pounders here in Holland. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm like, oh, what, what do you have? <laughs> so well, anyway. That's like, that's like the, the Pulp Fiction, you know? Sort of, that's like the yeah. Pulp Fiction scene, you know? With the... Yes, the Pulp Fiction, yeah. That's, that's like go. Pulp Fiction, absolutely. So, uh, no, no, but I mean, obviously... Uh, you know, I've been fortunate to have the opportunity of, of, of you know, traveling the world, even working in, in, in different locations. But my, my whole drive of identity as American, I think it's reflected through my, through my career. What I most wanted in my career is to be, uh, to go climb as high as I can in, in, in public service in government. And so certainly I have always seen that as a very patriotic way of, of serving your, your, your country. And so having had the opportunity of working in the State Department, having the opportunity of working in Congress, I think that's a way of, 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 of expressing that, that identity and that responsibility that one has towards your, to, towards your society. And certainly, you know, uh, right now it's very intense because of the, of the political situation that we are living here in the United States. And, um, and, and, I, I, and I'm very much committed to uh, ensuring that my children are as, as proud to be as American as they are because, you know, now they are the third generation if you consider my parents being the first generation, I'm the second. Now they're the third generation through me, but yet they're the second generation through their mom, right? So here at our house, I mean, it's very much a bicultural, bilingual um, environment. Um, but right now with my children, uh, English has become the dominant language between myself and them and amongst themselves, whereas Spanish is spoken by my wife to them. But yet, even though I do speak Spanish to them um, often, 
um, we end up, I end up falling back to English as a way of trying to explain things to them. So, you know, I, we do have um, certain customs here at home. We always fly the flag at our home on federal holidays or on special occasions. Um, my son is in, in Cub Scouts. My daughter just joined uh, the Scouts. So they're, they're being exposed to being responsible citizens through, through those type of activities. But yes, we're very much um, proud and, 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 and committed about who we are as Americans, just like any other Americans. Mm, absolutely. But let me ask you a difficult question, okay. a delicate question. So you are Mex uh, American with Mexican origins. And yet, when it came to choosing a spouse, you married a Mexican woman. Well, the story behind that uh, I mean, was okay. Of course, it's love, you know. I mean, sort of. Of course, but do you think it has a? Do you ha do you think it's? I mean, I find it interesting. Also, from a lot of our friends from KU, yes. our our Hispanic friends from KU, um, a lot of this has occurred. Where where it comes to marriage, then spouses are are chosen from, if not from the same country of origin, um, from the Hispanic community. What do you yeah. What do you think about that? Or, or no, it's a great question because, I mean, uh, you know, it just happened to be, um, I, I certainly, growing up, when I was considering, you know, I always wanted it to, to marry and, you know, I always wanted to have, you know, perhaps a girlfriend who was Mexican as well, someone who was very similar to myself. But here's what's interesting, Andrea, I'm so glad, now that I, you asked this question, it was very hard for me to find or even have a relationship with someone similar with someone who had the similar background as I, as myself. What, what I'm going to try to say with that, I could not find, I did not meet or have not met anyone that perhaps went through the same family experience that my family went through. Does that make sense? Sure. Um, and so it happens that I ended up meeting my wife and how we met was by accident. Um, uh, we met on, on, on the internet. We thought we were two different people. Um, I oh. thought she was, my friend, I thought she was my friend Gina and she thought I was our cousin Octavia. We were, chatting on MSN uh, chat hotmail back when it was just, you know, the names and, uh, but no pictures. So we, we thought we were two different people. And then we realized that we were talking to strangers. So then curiosity takes over and like, well, send me a picture. And I sent her a picture of me. She sent a picture of, of her. And then that's when I asked her for her phone number. And we started talking. And then six weeks later, I'm in Guadalajara um, going to her cousin's wedding. <laughs> as, so as, as love stories will go. Um, but what was more cognizant was perhaps marrying someone who was a kindergarten teacher uh, because of one of my, you know, I always thought about that and it, it, it turns out that she was a kindergarten teacher. Really? You always wanted to marry a kindergarten teacher? Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> That's funny. No, but I think it's very interesting what you, what you say that sort of um, ultimately um, the, the spouse we pick or, or how we decide to raise our family um, has to do with uh, looking for, searching for understanding of our identity. Um, Not a doubt. It is difficult. I mean, you know, I ended up marrying a German man. Um, certainly it's not exactly my culture, but, um, you know, my parents are Hungarian. I mean, it's, um, you know, I, I certainly kind of gravitated towards this European uh, um, side. But what does that say for for Americanism because that's also very interesting because I choose, I do not speak to my children in Hungarian. I mm -hmm. choose to speak to my kids in English. And that's, I've had this question before. Um, I think if we were, if we were living in the US, I would certainly speak to the kids in Hungarian because they would already have the American uh, side of me. Um, yeah. But because yeah. we live in Germany, um, that that's and, and that is very interesting as well because the American won over the Hungarian. Um, mm -hmm. So so you know that that I mean ultimately what what culture they will pass on, um, of course depending on how their lives develop, will be American and German, um, where the Hungarian is then diluted. I mean that's also something that's 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 very but difficult. Yeah, but for me, now that I reflect on this more, just how you shared, I, I think I was much more cognizant about meeting, marrying someone who spoke Spanish, right? Because I go back to that, go back to the idea that it's a very personal part of, an important part of my identity, um, the language piece, right? And so, um, 
you know, it's, it's, it's just how, perhaps how I see the world through those eyes. Um, even though I'm more, my, my English is more dominant than my Spanish because of my education, um, I still see Spanish as a very personal, very familiar, it's a language of my family, right? And so it's very dear to me. And so perhaps one thing I most yearned for or wanted in life was to have a partner who, who, who spoke Spanish uh, and would um, celebrate or, 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 you know, use it on a daily basis. And hence, I think that's where I was, you know, was drawn to. No. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. So let's talk about that because that's also a very difficult and controversial topic: bilingualism in the U.S. Okay. Uh, is is the U.S. a bilingual country? Should it be? Uh, let's let's talk about that a little bit. I think you have very uh, strong views on that as well. So I do have very strong views, and uh, and you know I uh, you know as someone, uh, I mean we could go in many directions on this one um, as as you can appreciate, but for me it's. Uh, I, I, I value bilingualism. I think it's a great asset. Uh, and I reflect upon what are the, the cities in the world that I most enjoy visiting. And I, one day I, re, I, I was thinking about this and I realized there's cities, they're bilingual. They're cities that have two languages, if not more, but yet there's two languages that are drawn together that have enriched those cities. And which cities are those in the world that I enjoy visiting? It's Miami. It's Barcelona. It's Brussels, it's Montreal. And those four cities, what they have in common is that they're bilingual. And I just find those cities very fascinating to, to, to spend time and, um, and certainly always like going back. Uh, but here in the United States, uh, unfortunately for me, unfortunately I, I had a sense growing up that Spanish was seen as a, as a, as a language of lower class society. It was not seen as a, language of high culture or high civilization in, 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 my, in my upbringing. You have to consider I was, I was growing up in Kansas in the middle of a continent, middle of the country. Um, and so certainly there was not much of a cultural influence in terms of appreciating the language for what it is on a, on a global sense of the, world, of, the, of, of the world, right? So for me, the language was very much a personal family language. And hence it became my identity. But now uh, as I have grown up, I, I remember in eighth grade, I finally embraced my Spanish to be able to begin speaking it more publicly. And at the university level, Andre, when you first met me, I always uh, was surrounded by, by classmates, friends of ours who were from Latin America and Spain, even my roommates were from Spain. And, and part of it was intentional because I wanted to practice the language and be as fluent as I could because I missed out perhaps on the more formal education uh, side of, of that. No? But I didn't know you were you were Mexican American for a long time. I, I didn't I didn't know that right away. I thought you were, you know, I thought you were one of the Americans hanging around, hanging around with all the Latinos. So you know. Really? Okay. So uh, uh, the the other thing I would share is that here in the United States, unfortunately, there's this um, there's been a growing movement um, to promote English as the official language. The United States does not have an official language policy. But this uh, movement is a, is a direct reaction to the um, immigration from Latin America, specifically from Mexico, to uh, declare that the, the English is the official language of the United States. Yes, it is the um, de facto language of the country. That's the language of our civil life, our civil society. It's the language of our government, of our education. But to uh, declare a language official at the risk of ignoring the, the, the significant cultural historical presence of Spanish, I think would be a huge mistake. Um, and it also sends a wrong message to other Americans that there is only one way of identifying as an American, that is being uh, you know, an Anglo-American or white American, and that other versions of American is not the official American version, uh, if, if, I, if I'm expressing that correctly. Um, so there are parts of this country where obviously Spanish was spoken way before English, was spoken. Um, Texas, for example, being the second largest state um, in population, over 70% of the K, the kindergarten through 12 populations are non-white, non-Anglos. Over half, about 55% are Hispanic. Uh, and the population percentage of Hispanics is about to become the largest numerically in the state of Texas within the next year. In, in other words, Hispanics are going to become the largest demographic group in Texas. I'll play, uh, greater than uh, white Anglo-Texans. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay, so what I'm saying with this is, 
uh, Spanish is spoken by at least a third of the population at home, one way or the other. And if you look at a country like Canada, where it is an official bilingual country, French is only spoken by one in four Canadians at home or as, you know, in their day-to-day life. But here in Texas, it's at least one in three that use Spanish every day. So why is, not, why is it that Texas is not officially a bilingual state when its own history, its own culture has so many direct ties to Mexico, even economic ties? So I think perhaps, um, you know, I'll be a bit controversial by saying this, that, you know, there perhaps is this uh, intentional or unintentional policy to, to, um, to, have to control the, the use of Spanish in the public spaces, when in reality it's part of everyday life. Mm. I think it's a very difficult, it's a very difficult topic. Do you think that it should be handled on a state level or on a federal level? I, perhaps at this point, probably at the state level. I mean, certainly there, there are states that the so closest to the state. Calif- ha- California, Texas, Florida. Yes. States that have always had a long histor- Hispanic historical presence. Um, the, the only state that perhaps is closest to being bilingual is, is New Mexico which has its, you know, its state song. There's an official English version and an official Spanish version, and they're both recognized. But um, other than that, I mean, but certainly I think, you know, Spanish should be promoted as a language of, of learning, a language of high culture in the United States, because at the end of the day, the United States has always been connected to, to the Americas. So how do you imagine it? So what does that mean? Um, so English and, for example, at schools, would English and uh, Spanish be taught would would English and Spanish be a mandatory language? Would what 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 language would other topics be taught in history, math? What I mean, do you know what I mean? I, I mean, I think it's interesting what you're saying with bilingualism. I don't I don't know if I completely agree politically. I I try to sort of uh, on this podcast not be political at all myself. I, I allow <laughs> others to express political opinions, but just on a on a practical level, um, if if it is truly bilingual, what happens to, for example, if the state of Texas becomes a bilingual country, what happens to the citizen of Oklahoma who comes to visit uh, Texas and does not speak Spanish? Should this citizen be uh, able to uh, have children go to school in Texas or go to the hospital in Texas or you know, just go shopping in Texas. Sure. Well, I mean, that, that's almost like a, a, a bit of an extreme case, but I, mean, but I understand. Sure, what, it is. Sure. Yeah. Trying, trying to, uh, to, to articulate here. I, I see it from a, a point of, of, of culture. You know, I, I'll, I'll be the first person to say that learning a second language is so vital for your own uh, personal enrichment. I, I aspire to, to be a polyglot. You know, I, I love languages, which is why I'm so excited to be part of this podcast with you. I, unfortunately here in this particular state, as I come to learn, the Spanish has always had a very negative stigma tied to it. Um, there have been generations of individuals who were punished in very harsh manners because they spoke it in the school grounds. And as a result, there's been this generation of Texans who unfortunately no longer speak it because they were uh, dissuaded and forcibly discouraged from speaking it. So they, 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 lo- they lose a connection to their own cultural heritage as a result. And so if, if there could be ever be an opportunity whereby Spanish can be offered as a language akin to English as, a, as, a, as part of your day-to-day learning, I think that would also enrich everyone in, in, in the society and have a better appreciation for others. It will become a much more tolerant society. So just so I understand you correctly, I mean, you're saying that English would stay then the lingua franca it would stay the yeah. la- the language that is used in official public oh, life and yeah they said i mean please don't think i'm expressing that spanish should replace english no that's, that's not the case what i'm trying to articulate is that spanish is part of the american identity it is an american language unfortunately there are segments in the society who see it as a threat and hence you have these expressions of hispanophobia that are largely targeted to Spanish. And you hear this on almost on a daily basis. The other day, a friend of mine in Chicago had someone verbally attack her because she was speaking Spanish to her children and told her to go back to her country, wherever that was. So that's where you have, we have to be very, you know, careful that there are obviously segments in society that see 
someone speaking a language other than their own as a threat. And I don't think that's healthy for a society. What, what I'm trying to, uh, uh, to, to uh, perhaps promote is the idea that we should encourage the, the, the teaching and the use of a second language with all citizens because it only benefits them in the long run and also makes for much more tolerant societies. And so given the states, the, the history of the state of Texas being so tied to, to Mexico and the economic ties to, to Mexico, it would make perfect sense for, for Spanish to be promoted as a language of, uh, as a skill that will help enrich the state and help it grow economically mm-hmm. and make it more competitive at a global market. And keep English as the yes. uh-huh. official language. Mm-hmm. In, in other words, in, in Europe, you know, you certainly see this quite a bit where, let's look at the case in, 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 in Spain with, with Catalan, where Catalan has overtaken Spanish in its day-to-day use. That, in my opinion, is, 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 is not a, an option in, in the U.S. context. And, and clearly there is no movement here in the United States that's arguing, if you will, linguistic nationalists. There's no ling- Spanish linguistic nationalist movement in the United States. Does that make sense? And so that's, that's off, off the table to begin with. That's, that will never happen in the United States. What I'm trying to, um, I guess, promote, it would be great to have a, an interest from the, the civil society saying, you know what, it's important for our children and our society to also have a second language and embrace Spanish for what it is, because it's a language that has heavily contributed to the American identity through words, through, through, through you know, the word, you know, even day-to-day life in, in terms of like food, right? As we talked about earlier. Sure, 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 sure. In, every, in every sense. But I think that's sort of, um, you know, I, I've been away from the U.S. since 2001. Uh, tr- going back to the U.S., I'm, I'm, I'm surprised, pleasantly surprised every time how much you can do in Spanish. You know, if you call an insurance company or most, uh, yeah. most telephone services, you have the options, you know, sort of to, to choose Spanish. You have, I, I do think, I mean, in Kansas as well, um, not to speak of all the other uh, areas that are more, more have more larger uh, uh, hi- Hispanic populations. So, so I think it is happening. And I think even from the side of politicians, uh, you see all these attempts of politicians trying to speak Spanish, uh, trying to also show that they are bilingual or they're making attempts to be bilingual. Well, a great example. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned about the uh, companies that offer their services to their clients in Spanish. Why? Because it makes economic sense. It makes business sense. Why? Because the Hispanic uh, community is the community that has been growing more rapidly in the labor force, and so, you know, it's there, there's there's a lot of um, for a company to be competitive in the United States, you want to reach out to your different demographic uh, consumer markets, and the most important one uh, is the Hispanic consumer market. It's a two trillion dollar strong consumer market. If you compare that uh, globally, it's about top twenty uh, economy in the world. It's an economy that's larger than Canada itself. So there's, there's certainly strong initiative or st- strong um, incentives to offer your products and services in, in, in Spanish other than just English or perhaps in other languages. Certainly in the healthcare industry, it's a very, a very important language to, to use because a lot of patients are, are, are Spanish dominant. But even on the political sense, it, it, here this week in the Democratic Convention, Spanish was used in, in reference by the speakers, uh, whether in passing or in commercials or in testimonies. Um, I was really impressed with the number of Spanish speakers that were highlighted in the Democratic Party Convention. And I, I'm probably sure that that's not going to happen on the Republican Convention next week, given the, per, the, given the current political climate in this country. I, I mean, you know, I, I come from a very strong uh, multilingual background. I mean, my parents are Hungarians from Romania. I went to a Hungarian school in Romania. So I can't be, I can't, uh, I, I couldn't possibly be on a different side. I mean, you know, sort of, I think that that was very, very important to my parents back then. And it was very important to me to go to a Hungarian school um, in Romania. But it was also very important to my parents that I that I speak Romanian. Um, they they really wanted to make sure that I was fluent in Romanian. I mean, we ended up moving, so so my Romanian is my weakest language because I just I just didn't learn it long enough. Although I still have it, I still kept it. 
And that's something sort of, for me, um, one thing that we do, I speak English to the kids always, but um, in public, we speak German. Um, I don't know, that, that's just how I feel. I feel that sort of, I don't know. It, uh, for me, it's almost like sort of a, a, a politeness. I just feel like if we're, um, but that doesn't mean that I might not in front of the school drop the one or two English phrases or, or say bye in English. But, but if, we're, if we're in public, like if we're, if we're at a store, I really try to make an attempt to speak only German because I find it rude if the, if the people around us or if the people, uh, the, the, the clerks do not understand us. So that's something that's, that's really important to me. It's really important to me that they also embrace German culture and, 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 and know everything about the German culture, you know, sort of. So, so I end up with my, with my own, with my own family ended up, I end up having possibly a lot of cultural confusion because uh, we end up having the American side and American culture expressed. And of course the language, I mean, the kids, the kids grew up speaking English first and then added on German. But we also have, you know, through also through my work, uh, we then have the Hungarian, we have the French, we have the Spanish. So it ends up being a, a lot of different things at the same time, which certainly it's enriching. But I think that it possibly it, it does lead to some uh, cultural or identity confusion. Any thoughts on that? No, but for me, it's um, I use both languages every day, you know, uh, not just here at home, but certainly through work, through my social um, interactions with friends. So for the last 30 years now, it's been part of my day-to-day -day life. So my, my, my view of the world, it's, it's a bilingual worldview of the United States. I do not see the United States just from the prism of one, of, of, the, of the, the vocabulary that's, that's within one language. I see it within the vocabulary of two languages in that sense. So in the spirit of multilingualism, we're going to do this podcast in Spanish as well. But let's wrap up our, our English podcast. Any uh, closing thoughts, Octavio? No, I, I very, very much want to thank you for inviting me to be part of this um, fascinating podcast conversation with you and, and being able to share with your, um, your audience uh, my unique cultural and, and linguistic identity. I, I'm very much proud of it, and I, I hope the, that others will take great interest in learning how important in Spanish is in the United States. It has a, a long history. And, uh, you know, I would like certainly, you know, highlight the fact that, you, you know, the United States of America is a very diverse country and it's, um, there's different ways of expressing your identity as an American. Um, there's not one single way of expressing it like, uh, like we perhaps have seen throughout the years of this idea of uh, the, the, you know, the red, white, the, the flag, apple pie, McDonald's or what have you. It's very much more than that. So, and we're now living in a 21st century whereby the, this, uh, the technology allow us to really, in an instant, uh, enjoy different aspects of, 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 uh, of who we are. Thank you, Octavio. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you again, Octavio. And thank you all for listening. Make sure to tune in next time. This is Dr. J, signing out.